0: That being said, as we all know, Valentine's Day is a few days away, all right? This is a reminder for all you men out there, okay? Lord knows you need it. Valentine's Day is a few days away. Tuesday, Wednesday. No, Tuesday, all right? It's a few days away. <laughs> just a reminder now. Look. Look. This is one you can't just turn a blind eye to, all right? Even if your wife plays it off and says, "No, nah, don't worry about it. You don't have to worry about getting me anything." Don't listen to her, okay? There are a lot of times you should listen to your wife. In fact, most of the time you should listen to your wife. But if she says, don't worry about Valentine's Day, she's lying, okay? Get her something nice. Get her probably flowers, probably chocolate, and make dinner or buy dinner, all right? Just a reminder. uh, Also, canned food does not count as making dinner. Some people need to know that. Judy knows who needs to know that. (laughs) Regardless, canned food does not count as making dinner. Treat your wives well, all right? All right? A reminder, okay? But in all seriousness, though, we need to make much of our wives. The thing is, they decided to put up with us dummies, all right? We're dummies, okay? They decided to put put up with us, so we need to make much of our wives. Uh, And there's one thing, if you probably have learned in marriage, for those who have been married, we need to be willing to sacrifice, all right? That word, sacrifice, has got to be on our minds in marriage, the thing is, it's a mutual sacrifice, husband and wife sacrificing for each other. And like marriage, hopefully there's sacrifice going on, marriage between Christ and his church kind of works this way, a mutual sacrifice. Now, the thing is, Christ has most certainly done most of the work, right? To be sure, he has done the, the heavy lifting for us, right? He's done the heavy lifting. Without him, we cannot be born again. Without him, we cannot have true life. This is true. Christ has done most of the work, all right? But there is a mutual sacrifice that should be going on. In light of what Christ has done for us, we ought to sacrifice ourselves. So that being said, let's go back to real quick to John chapter 3, verse 21, just as a reminder. The text says, "But whoever does what is true, in other words, whoever practices faithfulness, comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in or by God." All right, so the works that are result, visible works that are result of faithfulness, have been carried out by who? By God. Works that are result of faithfulness are not works that we do based on our own power, based on our own merit. It is God who works in us to produce those works. All right, so God, again, Christ, God, they have done the bulk of the work. Christ has sacrificed so much for us, and in response, what do we do? What do we do? In chapter 3 that we looked at last week, we saw Jesus, he was talking with Nicodemus, right? Nicodemus being a Pharisee, and Pharisees, well, they were all concerned about doing what is Right? which in itself is not bad, but they thought that, that that was their own power, that they earned their salvation. That was the issue. Nicodemus doesn't understand this, and Jesus is trying to get him to realize, hey, look, uh, being born again, true spiritual life, that is from me. It's not from yourself. On the other hand, following chapter 3 in our text today, we see John the Baptist And John the Baptist, he sees how important Christ is. He sees how vital, he sees how necessary Jesus is. In fact, he says, as we're going to see, he must increase, but I must decrease. John knows that he cannot do without Christ, unlike Nicodemus. So that being said, let's read verses 22 through 24. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John was also baptizing at Anon near Salim because water that was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized. For John had not yet been put in prison. Now, a quick clar- clarification here: Jesus himself is not baptizing. All right, we know this because in John chapter four, verse two, it says that Jesus himself was not in fact baptizing, but. His disciples. So, his disciples are baptizing on his behalf. So, Jesus is not baptizing. This is probably to avoid something like what happened between Paul and Apollos, right? Uh, there were some who were like, oh, I'm a Paul. You know, they were proud of being a Paul. And then there were some who were like, I'm proud of being Apollo. So, maybe Jesus did not baptize people himself because he didn't want people thinking they got the real deal, right? He didn't want people thinking that their baptism was any better than another's. And so, Jesus' disciples are baptizing for him, and John, he's apparently still baptizing. So John, he's still doing his job, right? John's whole purpose and whole mission was to prepare the way for Christ, to point to Christ, and he's still doing his job. But now, we have two groups baptizing. It's kind of weird. It's probably a little bit confusing, and it, to be sure it was to them, but we've got to remember. We've got to remember what John purpose of his baptism was. We talked about how he kind of baptized them, it seemed, to prepare them for Christ. So think about this, just as a reminder. The Jews, the holy, the, the high priests, what would they do? They would cleanse themselves with water before entering the Holy of Holies, in other words, the presence of God. And the Jews, they would baptize themselves in what were called mikvahs before entering the temple, before entering the presence of God. But now John baptizes people in preparation for Jesus. To be sure, he's calling them to repentance and he's preparing them for Christ. But now Jesus is having people baptized. Why? Why is he baptizing people? Why is John still baptizing? And why is Jesus now baptizing? It might be confusing and it was to them. Verse 25 says this, now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. Now, discussion or debate, it arose between John's disciples and a Jew over purification. Context: two groups are baptizing. Alright, two groups are baptizing, so it's a it's a conflict about purification. Why? Verse 26 says this. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness. Look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. Here's the issue. Here's what seems to be the issue, rather. We have two groups baptizing. John is baptizing people, but then they're leaving John, and they're going to be baptized by Jesus. And so this debate about purification probably has to do with this. They're like, wait a minute. Uh, What's going on here, John? They were baptized, but now they're going to Jesus to be baptized again? Do you have to be baptized twice? Do you have to be cleansed twice? What is going on here, John? What... Is this deal with purification? Does your baptism not work? That's probably what's going on here. They're confused and rightfully so, two groups baptizing. But John, the way he responds, look at it, verse 27. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. He's essentially saying, this is not up to me. Right? This is the will of God. Those who are leaving me and going to Christ, that is God's will. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. Now, understand how that applies to the context here. Right? Jesus is receiving people. He's having people immersed. We're not talking about trivial things. Right? Some might take this verse out of context and say, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given to him from heaven and then apply it to physical things whether it be money, whether it be f- houses, whatever. You know, Some people will take this out of context and apply it to that, but let's make this clear. It's not talking about physical, trivial things. Right? Jesus, he's receiving souls. He's receiving people to himself. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. If something is given from heaven, what must it be? Heavenly. We're not talking about trivial things. We're talking about something with spiritual significance. This is the will of God. Verse 28. You yourselves bear witness, just as John's saying, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. All right, John's reiterating what he had already said, all right? Yeah, uh, I'm not, who I am doesn't matter, okay? The most important thing John has ever told them was who he wasn't. He always points towards Christ. He's not at all concerned about who he is. We are not the center. Who we are pales in comparison to who Christ is. John the Baptist knows that. Verse 29. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. And the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. This is a pretty simple question. What two people are at the center of a wedding? The bride and the groom, right? John, he's just the friend. He's just the friend that rejoices at the bridegroom's voice. John was the voice in the wilderness, crying out, prepare the way of the Lord, and now he rejoices at the voice of Jesus. This is the same voice that calls people from the grave. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. That's the voice. John eleven forty three. 43, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, This is Jesus, Lazarus, come out! This is the voice to which John's voice recedes. Because Jesus' voice is the most important voice you could ever hear. Not too long after the events in John chapter 3, verses 22 through 30, John the Baptist will in fact be killed. You can see this in Matthew 14 and Mark 6. He's killed. Uh, it's pretty gruesome to not spare any detail. Herod Antipas, Antipopus, Antipipus? Ant- sorry, tongue-tied. Uh, his wife Herodias <laughs> essentially was convinced by... Her daughter to give her John's head on a platter. And so Herod has it done. John literally loses his head because some girl danced and asked for it. The life he lived, so centered on Christ. Christ was the only person he was concerned about. Was worth it to the point of losing his head. Not just dying, but being degraded. Being treated as just some thing. Are we willing to live life that way? To point others to Christ, even if it costs us our heads. He says his joy, he rejoices greatly and his joy is complete. How many people do you know would say that right before they're just going to... I can think of many people in my life who have dedicated their lives to Christ. Um, many people I have looked up to who have pointed to Christ and many people who are due so much credit, thanks be to God for the reason I have come to Christ. I can think of so many people. And that's how it begins. We see people like John who are so willing to just point to Christ, not even be concerned about themselves because their selves don't matter. They just point to Christ. And we come to him. But then, in response to others pointing, do we point? When it comes to Jesus, do we really see how much he's worth? Do we really see, as John sees, how much Jesus is worth? One thing that can be easily lost in this passage is this talk about purification. Um, that's how this discussion started. At the very beginning, there's a debate about purification. And then John, for some odd reason, goes on rambling about a bride and a bridegroom. Why? John, what does this have to do with anything? We were asking about purification, but now you're talking about weddings? What gives? Take a look at Revelation. Revelation. Revelation 21, 9, Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Now just to provide a little context, the the text just got done talking about the new heaven and the new earth, right? Uh, the, The place where we will dwell with God in his full presence with no suffering. He'll wipe away tears. That glorious picture that's painted in Revelation 21, it's then followed by Come see the bride, the wife of the lamb. Just to clarify some things, the bride is the church. The lamb is Jesus. I think we already kind of get that idea here, but why is Jesus so often compared to as a lamb? Think about this, right? The, the Jews would use spotless lambs to sacrifice and atone for sins. So Jesus as the lamb is the husband of the bride. He's the sacrificial lamb that cleanses the bride. So maybe John is not wrong. I think there's a reason he talks about bride and the bridegroom when talking about purification. It is because Jesus, as our husband, as our lamb, as our groom sacrificed himself so that the bride, us, may be cleansed. This imagery about husband and wife is also used in Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 27, it says, Husbands, loved your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water and with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Christ provides sanctification. Christ provides cleansing so that we may be presented as holy without blemish. As husbands should. That's a very important word. As husbands should sacrifice themselves for their wives. Unfortunately, that is so often not true. Some husbands treat their wives as a sacrifice to themselves. We're quite honest. But as Christ loved the church, husbands sacrifice themselves. For their wives. It's mutual. And marriage sacrifice ought to be mutual. But with Christ and his marriage with the church, is it mutual? Do we see his sacrifice? Are we compelled to, to sacrifice ourselves, to lay down our lives in the face of Christ's sacrifice? John the Baptist, he knows that it should be mutual. He knows how much Christ has given up and he knows how we ought to respond. And he says so in verse 30. He must decrease. Sorry, that is not what it says. He must increase, but I must decrease. He must increase. Some people think that Jesus' glorification is self-centered and selfish. Uh, he, he, says so, he says this in Matthew 10, uh, and I, I, you know, some people take this and say, well that's pretty selfish. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Some take those words, uh, take even John three verse thirty, and say, "Well, that's selfish. Jesus, why are you so self-centered? How? What is? Why do you say that to us? That seems kind of self-centered." how quickly we forget what Jesus did. See, Jesus, he did not come to earth to, to amass wealth, to amass uh, status. He didn't come to earth to pet his ego. Jesus came on earth. He, he lived a life with little. He suffered. He lived life serving for his creation. See, without his humiliation... We could not partake in his glorification. He's the only reason we have hope for something other than suffering and death. So no, it is not self-centered for Jesus to be exalted. One thing I love about this verse in verse 30 is that word there for must. He must increase, but I must decrease now in this context that word really it means it's got to happen it's inevitable Jesus' increase is inevitable and our decrease is inevitable that's right see whether we participate in his glorification or not he will increase it is going to happen whether we participate in his glorification or not, we will decrease. Whether we like it or not. So many people in our society try to increase themselves. They try to acquire so much stuff. They try to acquire status. They live life as, they, as if they are a center stage. And as long as people live life that way, they're never going to have enough. Because there's never enough stuff. I think that's why we see so many celebrities, they just constantly acquire things. They can never make enough money. Even today in the context of the Super Bowl, we see these these great sports players and they always fight for their contracts, fight for so much money. It's never enough. The people who have so much more than we could imagine in life, it's not even enough for them. Because it all fades. The increase they thought they had will cease to exist. So when John says here, he must increase, but I must decrease, it's not, it's not saying he will increase as long as I decrease. It's not saying Jesus may increase. No, this is a guarantee. Let's get one thing straight. Jesus is going to increase whether we participate in that or not. And John sees that. And there's nothing that gives John more joy than seeing Jesus increase and him decrease. He recedes into nothing as Jesus becomes everything. He loses his head, and Jesus is glorified. We've got to ask ourselves, are we going to see that? Are we going to see that he's going to increase and want nothing but to point to him? Are we going to find true joy in his increase? Or are we going to grasp after nothing? He will inevitably increase, and we will inevitably decrease. So like John, make the most of Jesus. Jesus who has done so much for his bride. So are we going to respond with mutual sacrifice? You can as we stand and sing.